Amen. Thank you, Nisa Jessica. Appreciate you singing about the rugged cross that brings salvation. And sometimes our soul does sing out hallelujah. As a matter of fact, I trust that this morning's psalm will speak to our souls and that our souls will want to desperately cry out hallelujah this morning as a result of being in the presence of God and in the presence of his holy word. Well, as you know, on communion Sundays, we take a break from our normal study which is now the Gospel of Matthew, and we dive into a psalm in the series that I've called God Tunes, simply because that's exactly what the psalms are. They are literally uh, lyrics put to music for the purpose of human expression and worship to God. And we don't know the tunes that accompany these lyrics today, um, but we still have the inspired word of God. We still have the lyrics that we can glean from and learn from. And as you know, by now, the Psalms are a powerful book and a very popular book because you find a little bit of everything in the Psalms, just about everything that your heart has longed for. Every question that's probably ever popped into your mind about life and God. These guys that went before us, these saints of old wrestled with the same things that we wrestle with. And so we find people just where their souls are crying out, hallelujah to God. They they feel that God is so close they can't stand it. But then you turn the page and you find the heart of a saint who's saying, God, where are you? And I got all this stuff going on in my life. I don't hear a peep. I'm crying out to you. Where are you? And then everything in between. So the Psalms are an awesome book. And it's my prayer that they will transform our lives. This morning, we are going to turn to Psalm 98. Let me read it in its entirety for you. Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He's revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre and the lyre and the sound of the melody. The trumpets and the sound of the horn make a joyful noise before the king. The Lord, let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. I think the psalm kind of naturally divides itself into two parts and the first three verses kind of answer the question, um, why praise the Lord? And then four through eight answers the question, how do you go about it? How do you praise the Lord when you decide that you want to praise the Lord? And then I think there's another question in this psalm found in verse nine that needs to be answered and we'll end our time by wrestling with that. In this psalm, obviously, the psalmist is very excited and he is calling God's people to joyfully praise him. 
Well, one thing that the psalmist is very excited about is the coming of the Lord to judge righteously. And so the question is this, is that indeed something we should be excited about or not? How can we be excited about something that's going a person, the king that's going to come and judge every wicked act when we know ourselves our own wickedness? If he is going to judge every rebel, is that something I should be excited about to receive? Knowing that my debts will be counted for. So we're going to cover all that ground this morning by God's grace. So first, why praise the Lord? The psalmist says, sing to the Lord a new song. He has done marvelous things. We're going to look at that. His right hand and his holy arms have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known. He's revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. So we have marvelous deeds. We have a revelation of righteousness. And he's remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. So why praise the Lord? Why do you praise the Lord? Why do you bother to take the time to praise the Lord? What's going on in your mind and your heart when you praise him? What, what's the impetus behind it? Well, the psalmist has reason why God is worthy of his praise. And the first thing that he mentions is his marvelous acts. And he's just thinking about his life and he's thinking about the past and the present. And he's, and he's concluding and reminiscing about how God has intervened and worked out things in a way that is worthy of praise. He's delivered him. He's helped him. He's given him strength. And he calls these acts marvelous. He realizes that God is a God that is able to do marvelous things. He intervenes in the affairs of man. There's times when we thought darkness would never end and God brought light. He's good to his children. And then out of nowhere, good gifts come from our heavenly father. Things that we didn't even think to ask for in our Times of prayer. So he looks after his children, not just moderately, but marvelously. And he looks after his children in fresh ways, in new ways, continuous. And that's why the psalmist encourages those that would read these words to sing even a new song to the Lord. God does new things, new acts, so that we're not stuck just in the past with old things. He freshens it up because he never leaves us. He's always concerned and he's always working. And so think about the new things that God is doing in our lives and praise him. Pen those lyrics and put those to music. Now, it's kind of ironic that the psalmist would say, sing to him a new song. Because almost every psalm, well, of course, for us now, every psalm sings about something in the past. So they constantly recount the acts of God in the past. And scripture tells us to do that, by the way, to not forget what God's done. And that plays a very important part of who we are. We are not to forget anything that God has done. But to keep it fresh, we are also to think about, well, what is God doing in the present? What marvelous thing is he doing today in my life? What is he doing in the church? Let's sing about that because God is still at work. This particular song is singing about something that happened in the past. 
as so many psalms do. And they constantly recount the great deliverance of God, of his people, out of bondage from the Egyptians when they were slaves. And that's just something that the church will continue to sing about forever and ever. God's saving hand. So God saved them from bondage. And they're recalling this event. Now, keep in mind that though the psalmist is recounting it, at the time, what happened here was put into words and it was a new song. And Moses was the one that did it. When God brought the people out of Israel, it was a hard, difficult thing, not only because of the oppression of the Egyptians, but his own people doubted him around every corner. They whined and they complained and they listened. And then they at, at the first sight of any kind of resistance, the first inkling of any kind of discomfort, it was whining and complaining and unbelief. And so they they get excited and they sing hallelujah to God when he sends the plagues. Yes, you got them. There are enemies. Now they'll let us go. And then they praise God as they were walking out. But then what do they do? They face the sea. So they have an insurmountable obstacle in front of them. And then it even gets worse because then they find that Pharaoh decided, no, we're going to chase you all. We're going to, after all, we're going to bring you back. So now you have horses and chariots and army, a formidable army, and you're stuck in the middle. And they're just whining and complaining. But then God, through the leader Moses, he raises his staff and he parts the sea. So now they're excited again. And they run through the sea on dry land. But they look behind them and here comes the army. Of all things. Talk about brave soldiers. Here they come. Chasing the Israelites. With the walls of water. But then God acts miraculously again. And he closes in the walls. So this is a great thing that they lived. A marvelous event. That was current to them. And what does Moses do in chapter 15 of Exodus? Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. That's known as the song of Moses. And it was new to them. So they, they take all this in. They were a culture of uh, singing people, I guess you could say. And we have kind of a culture. Every, pretty much every culture is musical, some more than others. But it was natural for them. To put into to song and sing about events, especially because things were so verbal and auditory in that culture. And so right off the bat, Moses begins to praise God and sing about the marvelous thing that he had done in the deliverance. So it's new to them. It's an instant hit. They love it. They're excited about it. Miriam loves it so much. She's like, Moses, I like that. And she gets her tambourine and she joins into it as well. And she just keeps the praise going. Miriam, and by the time verse 21 comes, she says, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. So they sing old, but they also sing new. When we went through the book of Judges, we were introduced to a new song just to, to give you one more example. And that was um, through the words of Judge Deborah. And Barak, you know, in Judges, they sinned, they got beaten down, they got enslaved, they cried out, they repented, 
God came and delivered them. In this particular incident, it's really in Judges 4 and 5, but I'll pick it up in the end of 4. Here's what happens, and then they sing about it. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against him, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. And then verse 1 of 5, then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam on that day. And here's what they sang of all things. They were excited about that the leaders took the lead in Israel. Wow. As if to say they weren't. They weren't taking the lead. Nobody was doing what they were supposed to be doing. But this day they did. And look what happened. We had a victory. And they sang about that the people offered themselves willingly. As if to say previously they hadn't. They weren't willing to follow God. They weren't willing to exercise their faith. They weren't willing to go to the war. But this day they were. And God saved them. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord. I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Making melody. Thinking about what God is doing in our lives. And, of course, their songs are go on and on and on and on and on and tell the whole story. This is a side note, but it's, it's a powerful thing. I wish I was more musical. Um, I have a terrible time memorizing song lyrics. It's some kind of deficit. You probably think there's a joke behind this, but there's not. My family will tell you I'll start and I get about maybe one line and then I have to make it up from there on. I just but there was this powerful scene. and I shouldn't take the time to do this, but just to give you an idea of the power of a culture that sings their story. You know, we should be singing our story and our story is God. It's our narrative. But there's this powerful scene in one of the Lord of the Rings books. and I can't remember if it's the Hobbit. The elves show up at Bilbo's house unexpected. Here they come and, you know, they're in there and they make a mess of it. They're slobs and they love to eat and drink and all this kind of stuff. But then there's this and he's all neat and orderly and has his. All his food in the cupboard and he can't believe that they're just taking all his cheese. And anyway, but there comes this really awesome time when things just settle. And all those men, the last of the elves that want to take their, their, their land back, they huddle around the fire and one of them starts to sing. And then they all sing. I, I should have brought the lyrics, but then I would have time to do my sermon. They all sing and they sing their story about the hills and the caves and the mountains and what they're all about. Oh, man. If I were a musician, I would write something like that and we would sing it every Sunday. Our story, the men would take the lead and you would be willing to follow. But it's just it's a powerful thing. To encapsulate what God is doing in our lives and to put the music, it works it down into our hearts. And so the content of these old songs and new songs, they're always similar. It's always about God's delivering hand because we always need it. We always need it. There always is a time in our life that we just need God to deliver us, whether it's because of something we have done or somebody's bullying, bullying us or whatever it is. We are in constant need. And so all, many of the songs that we sing to God are about how he came and met us 
in our battle. How he came to aid us with our against our enemy. So we praise him and we're going to have opportunity to praise today. So be thinking about the marvelous things that God is doing in your life. What enemies is he enabling you to battle? What are you up against? And another thing that the psalmist reminds us that God is praiseworthy about is that he reveals himself to the nations. And what he's talking about is when you do something this marvelous, when you take an entire people group, a nation out of another nation, out from under their bonds and split the Red Sea and that whole most of that army was decimated, like all of the known world at that time eventually heard about that. Just like we hear about things that happen in the nation. We know who's building their armies. We know who has nuclear weapons. And of course, we have a a more technologically advanced news network. But news, they had messengers in that day. So the nations found out about this. And we don't know how they all responded, but they knew it was revealed to them. It's a powerful thing to tell and to sing about the glories of God and the marvels of God. Because people hear about it and then they have to wrestle with it. Now, what happened to Israel was true in that world. It really happened so that if you were interested enough, you could go and and look with your 21st century binoculars and see them camped out in the wilderness because God is bringing them into the promised land. So people have to wrestle with what God is doing. What is God doing in your life? And do you share it with people? It's It's a form of revelation. It's a sanctification of God. What is he doing among the church and among the nations? We hear about it on our news. We have a lot of things we hear about it are the persecuted Christians. But the gospel, if there's persecuted Christians in these uh, minority Christians in these nations, it's only because somebody brought the gospel to them. There are great things happening. And we often hear about the movement, the revival among the Muslims, people that you thought they'll never listen The world needs to hear about what God is really doing in our life, in our in our season, in our day, because there's marvelous things. And even in our own lives, tell people about it. It's a big deal. And it is a form of revelation and it's worthy of praise. And then another thing that he praises God for simply because God remembers in verse three. He's just so grateful that the God that he serves is a God that remembers His steadfast love and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. God doesn't forget. And we need to know that because sometimes we go through periods in our lives where we're pretty sure God forgot. He's not paying attention. He's too busy doing something else. Something's going on up there. But there's no way because it's dry. Uh, The feeling's gone. The, the, The circumstantial evidence of the marvelous deeds are gone. Things just aren't happening anymore. And we think that God has forgotten. And it's a great reminder. God does not forget his people. I love the slogan, and I'm sure you've heard it. It's so powerful. And it's 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 kind of a slogan um, applied from soldier to soldier. And it really applies to the many battles that our country has fought. But there's a slogan from soldier to soldier. You are not forgotten. Sacrifice, whatever it is, you are not forgotten. And that's a little bit of what the psalmist is saying from God to his child, from God to his soldier here on the earth. You are not forgotten. 
you have battles and times get fierce and horrible and, and dry and you'd wonder if the sun's going to come up the next day. You are not forgotten. I am right here with you. This is a part, actually. This is a part of my plan for you that fits into the big picture. God's commitment runs deep to his children. So the psalmist is summoning God's people to think about his marvelous deeds, to think about how God is revealing himself and to realize that he will never forget us. And he's saying, for these reasons, God is worthy of praise. Praise him, peoples. Praise him. He is a worthy, worthy God. And we can think of things sometimes big and sometimes just little small praises that God just did this little thing and it will mean nothing to you. But it was so important to me. That's worth telling. He's a God that is worthy of the big and the small praise, whatever blessings. Praise God. From whom all blessings flow. Praise him here, creatures, or praise him, creatures here below. Praise him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. How do we go about it? Psalmist tells us, and you're going to like it. How do you praise the Lord? Verse 4, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Have you done that? Is that a part of the way, your, your mode of operation when you praise the Lord? Make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with musical instruments. And he goes on and lifts the lair and the trumpet and so forth. Let the sea roar. All that fills it, the world and those who dwell it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. So how do you praise God? You praise him joyfully and you praise him loudly. There's nothing quiet about any of this right here. You, you are bringing in the instruments to help you express the joy and the gratitude and how worthy your God is. You bring whatever means you can. Of course, you, 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 you keep it within the realms of melody. It needs to sound good and make sense. But you employ these as a means to praise. And he's, he's calling out to everything in this universe to take up instruments and to, to, in whatever way they can, usher their expression of praise. And I love the way he describes what's happening here. And I think... We lose sight of this because, you know, we come every Sunday. And for the most part, you have the same people up here and the same instruments and the same people out there. And you hear the same. And we sing, you know, I mean, we, we introduce new songs, but they're all familiar songs. And sometimes praise and worship can just become too familiar. Just too familiar. But he says, break forth. Praising God is a breaking forth. That takes place when you're praising God, you're saying yes to God and no to other things. You're breaking forth chains of sin are broken, chains of disobedience, chains of apathy. You're doing something about your faith when you praise God. And there is something miraculous that takes place in the praise of God, because right now there's a ruler that doesn't want you to do that. And there is darkness that fills this earth.
A lot of it. And we are constantly reminded of it in the news. But when you break forth in praise, you are bringing God's light to bear. That's what you're doing. You're reminding the world of why it's even here to begin with. You're breaking forth and you're breaking into new ground. It's it's the church militant. We're saying, yeah, we believe in God and we're headed to heaven and, and we're going to follow him and we're going to do it with joy in our hearts and praise on our lips because he's worthy. There is it's a spiritual battle and there's triumph that takes place by our obedient act to get our hearts in order to come prepared and to express joy and gratitude, to be mindful, to acknowledge what God is doing. This is a spiritual thing that makes headway in the big battle between light and darkness. You do it joyfully. You do it loudly. You know, when we sing songs, we are literally breaking into enemy territory that he will not have from us. When we gather like this, we're saying, no, we're using our time for God's glory. Whereas the enemy would have us. And I know there were many days in my life where I wasn't coming with God's people and singing praises to him. You see, it's victory. It's evidence of the power of God. It's a breaking forth. Praise isn't just singing. It's a spiritual advancement of the kingdom. It really is. Spiritual, it's the church militant. Today's church, you guys are blessed in many ways. One of the ways that you're blessed in is that you are in the age of the church that has the most advanced sound systems that the church has ever experienced. I mean, literally, we have the greatest materials to work with. I mean, a church has come so far in that. I just want you to know that the greatest sound system in the world will never make up for a languishing heart. The volume of our heart is what needs to be turned up. The volume of our heart is what needs to be driven with passionate praise. And it might get loud in here, but God's looking for that loud heart, not the loud sound system. It's helpful. But it doesn't make up, doesn't make up for our attitudes, It doesn't make up for our affections towards God. God deserves to be praised. Scripture says that if we don't ascribe to him his worth, we're robbing him of his glory. Herod did that and he fell dead. He took God's glory. God deserves To be praised. And there's only one reason that we will not ascribe to him the praise that he's worthy of. That's because we have a sick heart. We have a sick heart. It fails to feel and function as an instrument of praise in response to the good mercies of God. It fails. It's a sin. You know, it's a sin to downplay God's works. As if they're no big deal. As if, well, this is just what happens in life. It's a sin not to get excited about the things that are worthy of our excitement. Worthy of our exuberance. Our hearts are to dance to the beat of God's drum. 
when it comes to praise and worship and joy. Our hearts were created for that. Our hearts were created to anticipate, God, what are you going to do next in my life? And to anticipate what we'll talk about shortly in verse 9 when he comes and finishes the job. But just to give you an idea that this really is a spiritual advancement. It's a battle and praise is part of it. It's a big deal for us to praise the Lord in private and especially when we come together as the saints of God. Notice who is invited to join in this course. It's not just the people and it's not just their instruments, but it's creation itself. Creation itself is invited to sing praises. It's the animate and the inanimate things alike. So we think about, is this just a a metaphor? Because obviously the rivers can't really clap their hands because they don't have them. Yes and no. It's metaphorical, but it's also a real invitation. Because when God created the universe, he created every single thing to serve a specific purpose, which all together brings him glory. When everything is doing and functioning exactly as it's designed, a speck of dirt brings God glory. As it functions. As it should. Air brings oxygen, every molecule, everything, animate and inanimate, brings God's God glory as it functions. That's its kind of, it's, it's its offering, if you will, back to God. And so the psalmist, psalmist is inviting the created order to praise the Lord. And we know in Psalms talks about this. Creation does make noises and some people say "Ah, that's the praise. The stars make noises and so forth. But there's also a noise that creation makes in addition to whatever kind of praise it offers to God. And Paul tells us about it in the book of Romans. And he says, if you listen with spiritual ears, you can hear a noise coming from the ground. And coming out of the sky. And you know what noise it is? It's a groan. It's a moan. It's a moan because the created order is being held back from giving God the glory that he deserves. Because there's a sickness in the earth. There's a curse. The world is under the curse. And so creation can't be what it was created to be. And it's moaning and it's groaning. And it's longing to be set free. It feels that weight. So the psalmist is excitingly thinking about the day and inviting all of creation. Pick up your instruments and get the grass. A blade of grass glorifies the Lord. And come and sing your praises to him. And out of this psalm, and we will sing some of them. You you have some of the songs, some of them Christmas songs. But some of the songs that talk to nature and tell it to praise the Lord. So we have... um, Heaven and nature sing joy to the world. And then we have field and forest, vale and mountain, flowery meadow, flashing sea, singing bird and flowing fountain. Call us to rejoice in thee. It's a beautiful reminder of the restoration that will take place.
And that leads us to our final point. Think about verse 9. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Everything, including creation, is making this big fuss and is very, very excited to receive their king. Because when he comes, finally, it won't just be adjustment judgment, but it will be a righteous judgment. And I have to ask, how can that be good? Hopefully you've never been in a courtroom, but every time I've been in a courtroom, it's not a fun place to be. Very somber. Nothing exciting about it. People are wondering, is is justice going to be done here today? Other people are just sitting there waiting to get their sentence. How many years am I going to have to do? Am I going to lose my license? What's life going to... It's just... You you can't get... You're not allowed to get excited in the courtroom. You get kicked out. One time, a lady... um, We were in the courtroom. Child services. And this lady cracked a joke. And it was funny. And all of a sudden, everybody in the court is laughing. Because she was funny. She didn't mean to be funny. She was funny. Here comes a magistrate or whoever the deputy was. And this was a nod away. He said, settle down, settle down. It's a judge. You gotta, you can't be cutting up in the judge's courtroom. It's just not the kind of atmosphere for praise. I think you, you understand. So let's think about what could possibly be joyful about judgment. And then what could possibly be so terrifying about judgment. And then we'll, we'll uh, try to put it all together. As we close. Well, what's so excited? One of the things that's so excited about Judgment Day is that the judge will come. Of course, it's Christ the King. And when he judges, he will do it with equity. I mean, it will be flawless. Finally. Finally, we'll get to the bottom of things. There's no good old boy favors Sweeping stuff under the rug, splitting hairs, you know, where you just don't, you can't, who's guilty and who's innocent and all this is so complicated. He can see right through all of it. I mean, if you're innocent, you will be declared innocent. If you're guilty, you will be declared guilty. No fudging the truth. Every injustice will be answered for. Every perpetrator, every crime, all those things that that robbed us of our joy in our lives, all of those things will be held to task. Everyone will have to account for what they did wrong. No questions. King gets it right every time. We're not used to that. We're used to corruption. We're used to unresolved issues. We're used to not even knowing what to believe because I heard this bit of evidence, but then I heard this and it changed my mind back and forth. Oh no, he's got it. He's got it down. The hardest cases will be judged rightly and every wrong will be righted. So he's the judging king. He does. He will judge in ways where our jaw will drop, just like Solomon did when the two mothers came with the babies. How are we going to figure out whose baby this really is? We're all out of DNA kits. What are we going to do here? That was supposed to be a joke. Now you can send your DNA off and it's just anyway. He judged. I mean, wow. He's so smart. When the king comes back, all these little tricks we have to get out of things. Oh, man. He judged between bone and marrow. 
just it's just all going to come out in broad daylight and be obvious. So he's a judging king, but they're also excited, not just that he's a judging king, but he's a ruling king and he is going to rule in righteousness and goodness. And what the result of his rule will be is not just executing justice, but healing that which is broken. The ruler comes and with his good judgments, he mends things. He restores things. He fixes things. And so all of the things that have been held back from flourishing, he lets them loose. He deals with whatever it is that needs to be put out of the way and he lets it loose so that under his rule, things can reach their fullest potential according to exactly how they were designed. When Christ comes back, you will see thriving and flourishing in ways unimaginable because he is a good ruler, a perfect ruler, a loving ruler, a joyful ruler. And every decision, every call only brings forth good. There's a sickness about life. You got to you got to know believer or unbeliever. The world is not how it should be. Things hold us back. It's like walking in concrete. And sometimes we work so hard to accomplish something and just we never get to it. We just it's supposed to turn out this way and it doesn't. We try to build our families. We try to build our marriages. We work hard and it just doesn't have the outcome we want. We're being oppressed. We're being held back. And when the king comes, I just want you to know that every fetter, every speck of oppression, all the weights and the burden will be lifted and our hearts will be freer than they've ever been. And our hearts will do exactly. We will be so satisfied internally because we will be doing and thinking exactly as we were created. And it will be so good. So joyous. The wars and the rumors of wars. You know, evil around. You ever think, go into the one, go into the day, what's going to happen today? What's going to befall me today? All of that, wars, rumors of wars, tragedies, calamities, all the sickness that are very real possibilities. And we pray about them every week. Gone. Restored. Healed. Not just, not just a band-aid. A quick fix. But literally regenerated and restored and made new. The old is gone. The new has come. He lifts off all the burdens. Everything will operate righteously, truthfully, freely, joyfully, perfectly. People will thrive. Nations will thrive. The kingdom will thrive. Just to draw once again from Tolkien. Um. You know, the return of the king. But I think Tolkien does a beautiful job at calling us to, to earthiness, but yet heavenliness and righteousness and the need and the uh, ability of how far good rulers can take us. There's a little line in that book from the ashes a fire shall be woken. A light from the darkness shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. When the king comes back. 
I personally believe there is an anticipation in our hearts, although we try to suppress it really aggressively. There's an anticipation in our hearts, this hope that some of us have no reason for, believers do. Someday somebody's going to come and make this right. I think it's because there was a day when there really was a righteous king that ruled, and that was Christ before the fall, when he walked with man in the garden. And I think our hearts, just like we have eternity in our hearts, our hearts are longing for what used to be. We just can't put it all together, but there's something in there. He knows what the world, how many people have ever thought, you know what the world needs is a good king. And you got to admit, you know, if you have a ruler over here and a ruler over here, we do the best we can. We, you know, we have a Republican or democracy and it's probably the best that government offers these days, but it's not the best government. The Bible, by the way, doesn't, uh, doesn't um, uh, uh, not accommodate. The Bible doesn't um, pick or choose. I'm looking for a word. Sorry, but anyway, that doesn't point out what is the perfect government other than in the end, one ruler. And that's Christ. And he's a good ruler. And we've had powerful kings and, and queens. We've had a few good ones. Most of them are terrible. But there's something else to say, man, I just wish somebody could come and actually rule rightly. Somebody just come and fix this because it seems like everybody we put into office, all they do is mess it up worse. Or somebody makes a little bit of headway, but then it's undone. by You know, and we go through this and all the nations feel the same thing. But ultimately, in the end, there's going to be one calling all the shots. No disagreement in any area. At least the enemy has that much, right? You know, the one world ruler. Even the enemy knows that there's a longing in the hearts of people that realizes, you know, really only one person can be in charge. Because if you have five good rulers that aren't in agreement, the world's in a mess anyway. That one ruler is coming and it's going to be Jesus Christ. And he's going to cause everything to grow and to flourish. Because he's the one that's not going to, power's not going to go to his head. He's not going to fudge. He's not going to be politically corrupt. He doesn't need to be. Because he alone can bend everything to his will. That's his power. And everything that he bends and reshapes will only be good. So yeah, there's a longing for that. But what about the terror side? I mean, what do we do with this if he's that good of a judge and if he can see right through us and he knows every little thing and he does? From the time we were born to this very day, he knows every little rebellious act, every sinful transgression that we've ever committed. And it's not fuzzy in his head. It's plain and clear. Now, what do I do with that? And what do I do with that if he knows it all? How can I be excited? How do we handle this problem. Won't spend much time on this, but I just have to say postmodernism, right? That's what we live in. Just try to hit this really quickly. So the answer that our world or that our culture offers is that there are no absolutes. Everybody can just believe what they want. No standard or way of living or belief is any better, any higher, any lower than any other. Therefore, there's no God. And there's no judge because you don't have a standard to judge by. Isn't that wonderful news? Isn't that relieving? Because we don't like this idea that I have to give an account. This idea of a day of terror. And it sounds good and relieving, but it's the problem with it is this. If there is no judge, then there is no day 
where somebody is going to come and make this mess right. You see? There's no hope. It, that, that basically means we are absolutely stuck in filth. We're stuck in new in diseases. What new disease is going to come? I mean, I'm encouraged that we work on cures, but what new disease will come? Because that's what happens. We're stuck in this. It's just the way, say, oh, it's just the way it is. Because there's no good out there to save us. It's up to us. I like to think that things count and things matter and there is a right way and a wrong way. And, and one day, God will bring relief to all of this. But we have this problem. It becomes what will become of me. If there's no judgment day, what hope is there for the world to ever be right? But if there is a judgment day, what hope is there for me? And what hope is there for you? Well, the psalmist says his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. So can man be saved from this? Day of judgment? An unholy people? Let's go back to Exodus. And we'll wrap it up and pull it all together. Before the people were delivered through the Red Sea, Pharaoh didn't want to let them go. So God sent plagues to loosen his grip. And they worked. But the last plague was this. It was the loss of the firstborn sons in all of the land of Egypt. God warned them through Moses. He said, this is what's going to happen. If you don't let my people go, I'm going to come. There's going to be a, a blight on the land and there's going to be great loss. And there was great loss. And there was weeping and wailing the next morning as families, real life families, mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters woke up to a dead sibling, son, whatever. I mean, a whole nation of loss. Can you imagine all on the same day? Because God sent the angel of death. Judgment. How could the Israelites live through that judgment? Now, God actually had instructions for the Israelites. The way they are to live through the judgment is by, and he gives, we have the Passover. It's great detail. I won't go into all of it. You get a lamb, you bring it in a house, you prepare it a certain way, you slay it a certain way, you prepare it a certain way, you eat it a certain way. But most importantly, you take its blood and you paint it on your doorpost of your home. And you've got to be in your home. These are specific instructions. But the idea is this. When, the, when God's wrath comes on the world or the land, the judgment, the Israelites were guilty too. He didn't say, oh, you don't have you just go on with life. You don't have to worry about it. I'm just after the guilty. They were guilty, too. And there's only one reason that they walked out of that day or they woke up the next morning alive and well. It was because of God's provision of the blood. It was because of the blood of the innocent lamb. It wasn't because of their obedience. It wasn't because, well, I'm obeying the Ten Commandments that Moses hadn't written yet on the mountain because we're not on the mountain yet, but I'm obeying them. It wasn't a level of faith. He's, Moses believed in God. But did Moses need the provision of the blood? Yes. It is the provision of the blood. So what happens is that, yes, when Christ, when the king comes, 
Many people will face that judgment and they won't live through it. The ones that will walk away unscathed are only the ones that are covered in the blood. God's provision. It's not we're not prepared for it because we were so good. The only way you prepare for it is by believing in God's provision. How did the people exercise their faith? They just did the silly, crazy thing that God told them to do with this lamb. They did it. And God speaks. That was the exercise of faith. But what saved them was the provision of God's blood. I love what John Stott says. He says, the essence of sin is to put yourself in the place of God. In other words, to be your own boss. As if you weren't created by somebody else. The essence of sin is to put yourself where God deserves to be. But the essence of salvation is God putting himself where you deserve to be. On that cross, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. But he also absorbed upon himself all of the curse, all of that deep poison that's worked itself into creation. He absorbed it, absorbed it all. So that when he returns, it will be made new and flourish. And those that are not covered in the blood will glorify God in his justice. Because God's justice is a glorifying thing. It's a righteous thing. And those that are under the blood will glorify God with their new beings. There will be nothing held back. One more, humor me with one more quote. I'll close with it. Not Tolkien. C.S. Lewis. Final battle, last book. They've arrived. And just listen to these words. Use your imagination. The narrator speaking in these final pages. The difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock... Flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If ever you get there, you'll know what I mean. It was a unicorn who summed up what everybody was feeling. And he stamped his right forehoof on the ground and he neighed and then he cried. I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Hmm. Come further in and further up. I hope that our times together as we yield our hearts to God the best we can by God's grace as we come around the table, as we sing joyfully, loudly with a melody. Oh, that it's just a reminder of the taste of the things to come for the king will return and take his rightful place. May God bless the preaching of his word.